Part two of A Guide to the Lakes by Thomas West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lancaster. The castle here is the first object that attracts the attention of the curious traveller. The elevation of the site and magnificence of the front strike the imagination with the idea of much strength, beauty, and importance, and such it has been ever since the arrival of the Romans in these parts. An eminence of swift descent that commands the fords of a great tiding river would not be neglected by so able a general as Agricola, and accordingly he occupied the crown of this eminence in the summer of his second campaign, and of the Christian era seventy-nine, and here erected a station to secure his conquest and passes of the river, whilst he proceeded with the army to pass the bay of Morecambe into Furness. The station was called Longovicum, and in process of time the inhabitants were called Glongoviques, i.e. a people dwelling upon the Lawn or Loon. This station communicated with Overborough by exploratory mounts, some of them still remaining on the banks of the Loon, which answered the purposes of guarding the fords of the river, overawing the natives, and communicating with the two stations. That at Halton, Mellon, and at the east end of the Bridge of Loon, are still entire. It was connected with the station at Watercrook near Kendal by means of the beacon on Wharton Crag and the Castellum on the summit of a hill that rises immediately over Watercrook, at present called Castlesteads. The town that Agricola founded here belonged to the western Brigantes, and in their language was called Caerwerid, i.e. the green town. The name is still retained in that part of the town called Green Air for green care, the British construction being changed, and Werrit translated into English. The green mount on which the castle stands appears to be an artifactum of the Romans. In digging into it two years ago, a Roman silver denarium was found at a great depth. The eminence has been surrounded with a deep moat. The present structure is generally supposed to have been built by Edward III, but some parts of it seem to be of a higher date. There are three styles of architecture very evident in the present castle. One, round tours, distant from each other about twenty-six paces, and joined by a wall and open gallery. On the western side there remain two entire, and from their distance, and the visible foundations of others, it appears that they have been in number seven, and that the form of the castle was then a polygon. One of these towers is called Adrian's Tower, probably from something formerly standing there, dedicated to that emperor. There are two stages high, the lights are narrow slits, the hanging gallery is supported by a single range of corbels, and the lower stages communicated by a close gallery in the wall. Each stage was vaulted with a plain pyramidal vault of great height. Those in the more southern towers are entire, and called John of Gaunt's ovens but the calling them so is as ridiculous as groundless. Taibois, Baron of Kendal, is the first after the conquest who was honoured with the command of this castle, and William de Taillebois, in the reign of Henry II, obtained leave to take the surname of Lancaster. It is therefore probable that the barons of Kendal either built or repaired the ancient castle in which they resided, until they erected upon the summer site of the station of Concangium, their castle at Kendal. 
the remains of some of the bastions there agree in style with the towers here two the second distinct style of building in lancaster's castle is a square tower of a great height the lower part of which is of a remote antiquity the windows are small and round-headed ornamented with plain short pillars on each side the upper part of this magnificent tower is a modern repair the masonry shows it and a stone in the battlement on the northern side inscribed e r fifteen eighty five r a proves that this repair was made in the time of queen elizabeth it is pretty evident that the two towers with the rampart have been removed to give light and air to the lower windows on the outside of the tower and it is joined by a wall of communication to adrian's tower that could not be there when the other towers were standing there are two lesser square towers on the opposite side three the third style of building is the front and gateway this may be given to edward the third or to his son john of gaunt it fronts to the east and is a magnificent building in the gothic style it opens with a noble and lofty pointed arch defended by overhanging battlements supported by a triple range of corbels cut in form of bulletins the intervals pierced for the descent of missiles on each side rise two light watch-towers immediately over the gate is an ornamented niche which probably once contained the figure of the founder on one side is still to be seen on a shield france quartered with england on the other side the same with a label ermine of three points the distinction of john of gaunt duke of lancaster fourth son of edward the third the first english monarch that quartered france and england on a shield n b it was henry v that reduced the lilies of france to three on the north side of the hill below the churchyard are some remains of the wall that encompassed the station it retains part of the ancient name of the place being called Wherry wall those who suppose it part of the priory enclosure wall that was situated on the north side of the church may be satisfied by viewing the part of the enclosure wall yet standing a thin mouldering fabric whereas the wherry wall is a cemented mass that nothing but great violence can injure another fragment of it stands at the stile on the footpath under the west end of the churchyard it is frequently met with in the churchyard and its direction is to the western side of the castle the father of the late william bradshaw of halton esquire remembered the wherry wall projecting over the bridge lane pointing directly to the river this could never be the direction of the priory wall to say nothing of the name which tradition has preserved had mr pennant viewed both he would not have doubted a moment to join camden against leland at bridge lane it makes an angle and runs along the brow of the hill behind the houses in a line to church street which it crosses about covell cross this is attested by the owners of the gardens who have met with it in that direction and always find blue clay under the foundation stones though this station was one of the first which the romans had in those parts and from its importance the last they abandoned yet but few roman british remains have been discovered at it the caledonians the unconquered enemies and greatest plague of the romans in britain were particularly galled and offended with the garrison at lancaster it being always the first to oppose them as often as they invaded the empire 
by crossing the Solway Frith, for having taken the advantage of the spring tides and darkness of the nights at the change of the moon, they could escape the garrison at Virocidium, Ellenborough, Arbea, and Moresby, and skulking along the Cumberland coast, crossed the Morecambe Bay, and were first discovered on the banks of the Loon. Here they were opposed by the townsmen, who kept the garrison, and if they did not immediately return by the way they came, the alarm brought upon them the garrisons from Overborough, Watercrook, and Ambleside, who surrounded and cut them off. Hence arose a particular hatred to the Lancastrians, which time and repeated injuries fermented into rage. In the end, the barbarous clans, following close upon the heels of the flying Romans, would in a particular manner satiate their desire of revenge upon the helpless Lancastrians, by sacking and destroying their town and fortifications, that such another at no time might oppose their invasions. The Saxons arriving soon after, raised on the ruins the town that remains to this day, so it may be inferred that the present town of Lancaster stands on a magazine of British Roman antiquities. This is verified by digging under any of the ancient houses, where it appears that the earth has been moved, and Roman remains are frequently found. Beside what Dr. Lee mentions, there are many recent instances that proves the conjecture. In the year 1772, in digging a cellar, where an old house had stood in a street or lane, called Pudding Lane, almost in the centre of the town, was found reversed in a bed of fine sand, above five feet underground, a square stone of four feet by two and a half, a foot and two inches being broken of the lower corner on the right-hand side, so as to render the inscription obscure. The letters elegantly formed, square and about three inches high. The inscription had consisted of eight or nine lines, of which six are entire, and of easy explanation. The loss in the seventh is readily supplied, but the eighth must be made out by the common style of such votive stones. The elegance of the letters pronounce them to be the work of the best times, but the two small letters in the third and fifth line reduce it to the age of the Emperor Gordian, and if the three small letters have been occasioned by the omission of the sculptor, then it will be of higher antiquity. It is known by inscriptions found at Olenacum, Old Carlisle, that the Augustan wing mentioned in this inscription was stationed there in the time of Gordian, but from this inscription it seems to have also been at Lancaster. This memorable stone is now to be seen in the rare collection of Ashton Lever Esquire in Leicester House, London. Two years ago, in sinking a cellar in an old house in Church Street, some cartloads of fragments of Roman earthenware were thrown out, urns, patera, etc., many of them finely glazed and elegantly marked with emblematic figures, some copper coins and an entire lamp with a turned-up perforated handle to hang it by, the nozzle of which is black from use. At the depth of two yards were also found a great number of human bones, small and large, with burnt ashes, a wall of great thickness, and a well filled with rubbish of the same kind, probably leading to a vault where remains are deposited. But the curious must for ever regret that no further search was made. What throws new light upon the station here? is the late discovery of a Roman pottery by the Honourable Edward Clifford, in his estate of Quarmore, near Lancaster. 
that the works have been very considerable may be guessed from the space discoloured with broken ware and the holes from whence the clay has been taken with the great variety of bricks tiles and vessels that are found but the greatest discovery is upon a tile with turned up ledges impressed with a stamp on each end alle sebusia a wing of cavalry not heard of before the same inscription is found on bricks the label smaller and letters alla sebusia the shape of the second letter in the first word is like that in the inscription on the rock near brampton in cumberland supposed to be cut in the time of the emperor severus a d two hundred and seven and is the fifth l in horsley's alphabet on the brick the letters are square from which may be inferred that this wing was long stationed at lancaster this town ever since the conquest is renowned for loyalty and attachment to established government for which king john honoured it with as ample a charter as he had conferred on the burgesses of bristol and northampton charles the second exemplified and confirmed the same with additional privileges but lancaster derived its greatest lustre and importance from the title it gave to edmund second son of henry the third and to his issue dukes of lancaster and kings of england of the lancastrian line but in the end suffered much by supporting their title to the crown in the contest with the house of york so little had it retrieved itself when camden visited it sixteen hundred and nine that he speaks of it as not populous and that the inhabitants were all husbandmen since that time it is much enlarged the new houses are neat and handsome the streets well paved and thronged with inhabitants busied in a prosperous trade to guinea and the west indies along a fine quay noble warehouses are built and when it shall please those concerned to deepen the shoals in the river ships of great burthen may come up close to the warehouses at present only such can come up as do not exceed two hundred and fifty tons the air of lancaster is salubrious the environs pleasant the inhabitants wealthy courteous hospitable and polite the church is a handsome gothic structure the beautiful east window is obstructed by a tall screen behind the altar and the church is further hurt by a multiplicity of pews the only remains of ancient furniture are a few turn-up seats carved in the style of the times when it belonged to the priory of saint martin of says in france some of the carvings are fine but the figures are either gross or grotesque it stands on the crown of an eminence below the castle from which it is only separated by the moat the views from the churchyard are extensive and pleasant particularly the grand and much admired prospect of the northern mountains the new chapel is a neat and more commodious place of worship there are also in this town presbyterian quaker and methodist meeting-houses and a romish chapel when the present incommodious bridge was lately repaired some brass pieces of money were found under a foundation stone from which it is conjectured to be of danish origin a more ancient bridge stood higher up the river at skirton town end a situation much more convenient and would make a fine entrance which lancaster is defective in before you leave lancaster take a ride to the three milestone on the road to hornby 
and have Mr. Gray's most noble view of the Vale of Lonsdale, which he or his editor describes in these words, in the note, page 373. This scene opens just three miles from Lancaster, on what is called the Queen's Road. To see the view in perfection, here you must go into a field on the left. Here Ingleborough, behind a variety of lesser mountains, makes the background of the prospect. On each hand of the middle distance rise two sloping hills, the left clothed with thick wood, the right with variegated rock and herbage. Between them, in the richest of valleys, the loon serpentizes for many a mile, and comes forth ample and clear through a well-wooded and richly pastured foreground. Every feature which constitutes a perfect landscape of the extensive fort is here not only boldly marked, but also in its best position. From Lancaster to Hest Bank, four miles. Set out with the Ulverstone carriers at the stated hour, or take a guide for the sands, called Lancaster Sands, nine miles over. On a fine day there is not a more pleasant seaside ride in the kingdom. On the right, a bold shore, deep indented in some places, and opening into bays in others. Valleys open to the view that stretch far into the country, bounded on each side by hanging grounds, cut into enclosures, interspersed with groves and hanging woods, adorned with sequestered cots, farms, villages, churches and castles, mountains behind mountains, and others just seen over them close the foreseen. Claude has not introduced Soracte on the Tiber in a more happy point of view than Ingleborough appears in during the course of this ride. At entering on the sands to the left, Hesham Point rises abruptly, and the village hangs on its side in a beautiful manner. Over a vast extent of sands, see Peel Castle, the ancient bullock of the bay, rears its venerable head above the tide. In front appears a fine sweep of country, sloping to the south. On the right, Wharton Crag presents itself in a bold style. On its arch summit are the vestiges of a square encampment, and the ruins of a beacon. Grounds bearing from the eye, variegated in every pleasing form, by woods, variety of pastured grounds and rock for many a mile, are terminated by cloud-topped Ingleborough. A little further on to the right, another vale opens to the sands, and shows a broken ridge of rocks, and beyond them are seen groups of mountains towering to the sky, Cattlesteads, a pyramidal hill that rises above the station at Kendal, is now in sight. At the bottom of the bay stands Arnside ancient tower, once a mansion of the Stanleys. The Cartmel coast, as you advance, becomes more pleasing. Betwixt that and Silverdale Nab, a pyramidal mountain of naked grey rock, is a great break in the coast, and through it the river Kent rolls its waters to join the tide. In the mouth of the estuary are two beautiful conical isles, clothed in wood and sweet verdure. As you advance towards them, they seem to change their situation and vary their appearance. At the same time, a grand view opens of the Westmoreland Mountains, tumbled about in a most surprising manner. At the head of the estuary, under a beautiful green hill, Heversham village and church appear in fine perspective. To the north, Whitbarrow Scar, a huge arched and bended cliff, 
of an immense height shows a storm-beaten front the intermediate space is a mixture of rocks and woods and cultivated patches that form a romantic view as you approach a guide on horseback called the carter is in waiting to conduct passengers over the ford the priory of cartmel was charged with this important office and had synodal and peter pence allowed towards the maintenance of the guide since the dissolution of the priory it is held by patent of the duchy of lancaster and the salary twenty pounds per annum is paid by the receiver-general cartmel is a small district belonging to lancashire but united to westmoreland a little below bowness on windermere and from thence extends itself betwixt the rivers leven and kent intersecting the great bay of morecambe it is three miles across from cark lane where you quit the sands to sandyet pass through fluckborough once a market town by charter granted to the prior of cartmel lord paramount from king edward i the only thing worthy of notice is the church of cartmel a handsome gothic edifice the east window is finely ribbed with pointed arches light and elegant the painted glass is almost defaced the preservation of this edifice reflects honour on the memory of george preston of holker esq who at his own expense new roofed the whole and decorated the inside with a stucco ceiling the choir and chancel he also repaired suiting the new parts to the ancient remains of the canon's seats thereby preserving the ancient form entire persons uninformed of this always take it to be the same it was before the dissolution the style of the building like most of its contemporaries is irregular the pointed and round arch is contrasted and the fine clustered pillar faces the heavy octagonal the form is a cross in length one hundred and fifty seven feet the transepts one hundred and ten feet the height of the walls fifty seven feet the tower on the centre is a singular construction being a square within a square the higher set at cross angles within the lower this gives it an odd appearance on all sides but may have some reference to the octagonal pillars in the church and both to the memory of something now forgotten it was built and endowed with the manor of cartmel by william mariscal the elder earl of pembroke in eleven eighty eight according to some but as in the foundation deed mention is made of henry the second richard and henry the younger his lord the king it appears rather to have been founded in the beginning of that reign for william the elder earl of pembroke died in the fourth or fifth year of that reign viz henry the third he gave it to the canons regular of st austin reserving to himself and his heirs the right of granting to them the congé d'eslire of a prior who should be independent of all others and never to be erected into an abbey under the north wall a little below the altar is the tombstone of william de walton prior of cartmel he is mentioned in the confirmation diploma of edward the second and must have been one of the first priors opposite to this is a magnificent tomb of a harrington and his lady which mr pennant thinks may be of sir john harrington who in thirteen hundred and five was summoned by edward i with numbers of other gallant gentlemen to meet him at carlisle and attend him on his expedition into scotland but it agrees better with a john de harrington called john of cartmel 
or his son of Rasham Tower, in Cartmel, as Sir Daniel Fleming's account of that family has it. The head of the Harrington family, Sir John Harrington, in the reign of Edward I, was of Aldingham, and lived at Gleaston Castle in Furness, and died in an advanced age, 1347, and is more probably the Sir John Harrington mentioned in Dugdale's baronage, and summoned by Edward I. There is not one vestige of the monastery remaining. There is a gatehouse, but whether this was connected with the cloisters or not, tradition is silent, and the distance from the church is unfavourable to the conjecture. Proceed through rocky fields and groves to Holker, one mile, the seat of the right honourable Lord George Cavendish. The carriage road is by Cark Hall. At the top of the hill there opens a fine view of Furness. Holker Hall lies at your feet, embosomed in wood. On the left, Ulverston Bay opens into the Great Bay and is four miles over. The coast is deeply indented and the peninsulas are beautifully fringed with wood. On the right, a bold bending rock presents a noble arched forehead, and a fine slope of enclosed grounds, mixed with wood, leads the eye to Ulverston, the port and mart of Furness. Conishead shows its pyramidal head, completely clothed in wood. At its feet the priory, shielded by a wing of hanging wood that climbs up the side of a steep hill. Bardsey, under its rocks and hanging woods, stands in a delightful point of view. In front, a sweet fall of enclosures, marked with clumps of trees and hedgerows, gives it a most picturesque appearance. A white house on the sea-bank, under the cover of a deep wood, has a most enchanting appearance. The coast from that is of singular beauty, of hanging woods, enclosed land, and pasture-grounds, varied in every pleasing form, and where an extensive view can charm, this must. Descent to Holker, which adds to the scenes, what is peculiar to itself, with the improvements of the noble owner, finished in a masterly style. The traveller will here observe husbandry in a more flourishing way than in the country he is soon to visit. The farmers here, as elsewhere, are slow in imitating new practices, but the continued success which attends his lordship's improvements has not failed in effecting a reformation amongst the Cartmel farmers. In crossing Leven Sands to Ulverston, you have on the right a grand view of alpine scenery, a rocky hill patched with wood and heath, rising immediately from the coast, directs the eye to an immense chain of lofty mountains, increased in magnitude and height, since they were seen from Hestbank. On a fine morning this is a pleasant ride, when the mountains are strongly illuminated by the sunbeams, and patched with shadows of intervening clouds that sail along their sides, or over their summits drag their watery skirts through which the sunbeams streaming gild their rocky heads with silver, and variegate their olive-coloured sides with stripes of gold and green. This fairy scene soon shifting, all is concealed in a mantle of azure mist. At the Eyre, or ford of the River Leven, another carter conducts you over. On the dissolution of the Priory of Conishead, King Henry the Eighth charged himself and successors with the payments which the guide received from the priory, fifteen marks per annum, 
and the office is held and the salary is paid as to the other carter ulverston the london of furness is a neat town at the foot of a swift descent to the south-east the streets regular and excellently well paved the weekly markets for low furness has been long established here to the prejudice of dalton the ancient capital of furness the articles of export are iron ore in great quantities pig and bar iron oats barley beans potatoes bark and limestone the principal inns are kept by the guides who pass to and from lancaster on sunday tuesday and friday in every week the entertainment is good the attendance civil and charge reasonable make an excursion to the west three miles and visit the greatest iron mines in england at Whitrigs the works are carried on with much spirit by driving of levels into the bosom of the mountain the ore is found in a limestone stratum mixed with a variety of spars of a dirty colour there is much quartz in some of the works that admits of a high polish at present the works in stone close and adgarley are the most flourishing that have been known in furness the mineral is not hurtful to animal or vegetable the verdure is remarkably fine about the workings and no one ever suffered by drinking the water in the mines though discoloured and much impregnated with the ore by dalton to the magnificent ruins of furness abbey and there see the wild waste of all devouring years how rome her own sad sepulchre appears with nodding arches broken temples spread the very tombs now vanish like the dead this abbey was founded by stephen earl of morton and boulogne afterwards king of england a d eleven twenty seven and was endowed with the lordship of furness and many royal privileges it was peopled from the monastery of savigny in normandy and dedicated to saint mary in ancient writings it is styled saint mares of furness the monks were of the order of savigny and their dress was grey cloth but on receiving saint bernard's form they changed from grey to white and became cistercians and such they remained till the dissolution of monasteries the situation of this abbey so favourable to contemplative life justifies the choice of the first settlers such a sequestered site in the bottom of a deep dell through which a hasty brook rolls its murmuring stream and along which the roaring west wind joined with the deep-toned matin song must have been favourable to the solemn melancholy of monastic life to prevent surprise and call in assistance a beacon was placed on the crown of the eminence that rises immediately from the abbey and is seen over all low furness the door leading to the beacon is still remaining in the enclosure wall on the eastern side the magnitude of the abbey may be known from the dimensions of the ruins and enough is standing to show the style of the architecture the round and pointed arches occur in doors and windows the fine cluttered gothic and the heavy plain saxon pillars stand contrasted the walls show excellent masonry in many places counter-arched and the ruins are strong cement the east window has been noble and some of the painted glass that once adorned it is preserved in a window in windermere church on the outside of the window under an arched festoon is the head of the founder and opposite to it 
that of Maud, his queen, both crowned and well executed. In the south wall and east end of the church are four seats, adorned with Gothic ornaments. In these, the officiating priest with his attendants sat at intervals during the solemn service of high mass. In the middle space lies a procumbent figure of a man in armour, cross-legged in the place where the first barons of Kendal lie interred. The chapter house has been a noble room of sixty feet by forty-five. The vaulted roof, formed of twelve ribbed arches, was supported by six pillars in two rows at thirteen feet distance from each other, and the side walls, supposing each pillar two feet diameter, which divided the room into three alleys or passages of thirteen feet wide. At the entrance, the middle only could be seen, lighted by a pair of tall pointed windows at the upper end of the room. The company in the side passage would be concealed by the pillars, and the vaulted roof that groined from those pillars would have a true Gothic disproportioned appearance of sixty feet by thirteen. The two side alleys were lighted each by a pair of similar lights, besides a pair on each side at the upper end, at present entire, and illustrate what is here said. Thus, whilst the upper end of the room had a profusion of light, the lower end would be in the shade. The noble roof of this singular edifice did but lately fall in. The entrance or porch is still up, a fine circular arch, beautified with a deep cornish, as also a portico on each side. The only entire roof now standing is of a building without the enclosure wall. It was the schoolhouse for the children of the abbot's tenants, and is a single ribbed arch that groins from the walls. There is a general disproportion, remarkable in Gothic churches, which must have originated in some effect intended by all the architects. Perhaps to strike the mind with reverential awe at the sight of magnificence, arising from the vastness of two dimensions, the third seemingly disregarded, or perhaps such proportion of height and length was found more favourable than any other to the church song, by giving a deeper swell to the choir of chanting monks. A remarkable deformity in this edifice, and for which there is no apparent reason or necessity, is that the north door, which is the principal entrance, is on one side of the window over it. The tower has been supported by four magnificent arches, of which only one remains entire. They rested upon four tall pillars, three are finely clustered, the fourth is of a plain, unmeaning construction. From the abbey, if on horseback, return by Newton, Stainton, and Adgalley. See on the right a deep embayed coast, the islands of Walney, Fulney, and Peel Castle, a variety of extensive views on all sides. At Adgalley, the new works are carried on under the old workings. The richest iron ore is found here in immense quantities. One hundred and forty tons have been raised at one shaft in twenty-four hours. To the right have a view of the ruins of Gleaston Castle, the feet of the Flemings soon after the conquest, and, by a succession of marriages, it went to Cansfield, then to Harrington, who enjoyed it sixty cents, after that to Bonville, and lastly to Grey, and was forfeited by Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk, A.D. 1559. 
leaving Urswick behind, ascend Burkrig, a rocky eminence, and from the beacon have a variety of extensive and pleasant views of land and sea, mountains and islands. Ulverston appears seated under a hanging wood, and behind that Furness Fells, in various shapes, form the grandest far ground that can be imagined. The back view is the reverse. When the tide is up, a fine arm of the sea stretching far within land, terminated by bold rocks and steep shores. Across this expanse of sea, a far country is seen, and Lancaster Town and Castle is perceived in a fine point under a scree of high grounds, over which Fable Cluffer rears his venerable head. Ingleborough, behind many other mountains, has a fine effect from this station. If, in a carriage, return from the abbey by Dalton, this village is sweetly situated on the crest of a rocky eminence, sloping to the morning sun. At the upper end is a square tower, where formerly the abbot held his secular court, and secured his prisoners. The keep is in the bottom of the tower, a dismal dungeon. This village, being conveniently situated in a fine sporting country, is honoured with an annual hunt, begun by the late Lord Strange, and is continued by his son, the truly noble Earl of Derby. It commences the Monday after the 24th of October, and continues two whole weeks. For the better accommodation of the company, two excellent long rooms were built about four years ago, and called Sportsman's Hall. Return to Ulverston, and from thence to the Priory of Conishead, the Paradise of Furness. A Mount Edgecombe in miniature, it well deserves a visit from the curious traveller. The house stands on the site of the Priory of Conishead, at the foot of a fine eminence, and the ground falls gently from it on all sides. The slopes are planted with shrubs and trees in such a manner as improve the elevation, and the waving woods that fly from it on each wing give an airy and noble appearance. The south front is in the modern taste, extended by an arcade. The north is in the Gothic style with a piazza. The offices on this side form wings. The apartments are elegantly furnished, and the house is a good and convenient one. But what recommends itself most to the curious is a plan of pleasure ground, on a small scale, raised by improvement, to equal one of the greatest in England. The variety of culminated grounds and winding slopes, comprehended within this sweet spot, furnishes all the advantages of mountains and vales, woods and water. By the judicious management of these assemblages, the late owner did work wonders, and by well consulting the genius of the place, called in to aid his plan, and harmonised the features of a country vast in extent, and by nature highly picturesque, whole distant parts answering, form a magnificent whole. Besides the ornamental grounds, the views from the house are both pleasing and surprising, pastoral, rural, and marine. On one hand a fine estuary, spotted with rocks, isles, and peninsulas, a variety of shore, deeply indented in some places, in others composed of noble arched rocks, craggy, broken, and fringed with wood. Over these, hanging woods, intermixed with cultivated enclosures, covered with a background of stupendous mountains. The contrast of this view is at the other end of the gravel walk, between two culminating hills, covered with tall wood, 
is seen in fine perspective a rich cultivated dale divided by hedgerow trees beyond these hanging grounds cut into enclosures with scattered farms above all a long range of waving pasture ground and sheep walks shining in variety of vegetation this sweet pastoral picture is heightened much by the deep shade of the towering wooded hills between which it is viewed turn to the left the scenery is all reversed under a range of tall sycamores an expanse of water bursts upon the eye and beyond it land just visible through the azure mist vessels traversing this bay are seen in a most picturesque manner and from the lower windows appear sailing through the trees and approaching the house till they drop anchor just under the windows the range of sycamores has a fine effect in this sea view by breaking the line in the watery plain and forming an elegant frame to a very excellent picture by turning a little to the right the prospect changes at the head of a sloping enclosure and under the skirts of a steep wood a sequestered cottage stands in the point of beauty there is a great variety of pleasing views from the different meandering walks and seats in the wood at the moss house and the seat in the bottom of the wood where ulverston and the environs make a pretty picture under the shrubbery on the eastern side of the house and from the gate at the northern end of the walk in the afternoon and sun shining behind a swell of green hills the conical summits of distant mountains are seen glistening like burnished gold in the sunbeams and pointing to the heavens in a noble style but as this sweet spot is injured by description i shall only add that it is a great omission in the curious traveller to be in furness and not to see this wonderfully pretty place to which nature has been so profuse in noble gifts directed by the assistance she has had under the conduct of an elegant fancy a correct judgment and refined taste end of part two